it's not us. It was na'areinu uviz kenenu neilich. Usually we, we follow our elders. We stand for our elders. We, they're closer to Harsinai. They have experience. Mipnei seva tokum. But in Gula, in the process of Gula and by Yamsuf, we learn it. And I think that's what's happening now is binareinu uviskenenu leilich. We, we're, we're following after the, the intuition of the youth and the will of the nation that's revealed by the B'nei Hanavim, by, by this new generation that's coming. What I do know is that there's an awakening of the intuition of the nation that really expresses the divine will and I think a revelation of prophecy in, in especially in the youth and you see in our soldiers and, and in their and in their spouses and their partners and, and and this awakening from below, not from above, not international policy, not foreign policy, not textbook stuff, but just the the basic Jewish desire to to and readiness to sacrifice and however that dreidel lands to just keep going. I'm Scott Kahn. And this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. This is going to be an atypical episode of the podcast. Many people have noted that there are significant parallels between the Jewish world as it exists after the October 7th pogrom and the subsequent war with an enemy determined to wipe Jews and Judaism off the map, and the themes that we pay attention to on Hanukkah. In order to discuss some of these themes of Hanukkah and the way that we can uniquely relate to them in 2023, I was honored to invite three of my favorite podcast guests back to the Orthodox Conundrum, Rabbi Judah Michel, Rabbi Yonah Buchstein, and Dr. Malka Simkovich. Each of my guests talked about the elements of Hanukkah that they are considering in today's environment. All three discussions were free-flowing and were in many ways more conversational than typical interviews. I hope that the ideas that we expressed will offer you some new ways of relating to Hanukkah so that we can all discover additional layers of meaning in the service of providing chizuk or encouragement in these difficult times. We'll get to those conversations in a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Last week, I released two new articles. One, entitled Yaakov Joins the Israeli Army, discusses my feelings when we dropped off our son last week when he joined the IDF. And the second, The Ironic Holiday, addresses the problem that too many people literally get the themes of Hanukkah exactly backwards. The link is in the description of this podcast, so get your free subscription today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Rabbi Judah Michel is the Executive Director of Camp Hask, the Hebrew Academy for Special Children. He is the mashpia of OUNCSY and founder of Tzama Nafshi. Rabbi Judah lives in Ramat Beit Shemesh with his wife, Ora, and their family. Rabbi Judah Michelle, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. How are you, Scott? How are you doing? I'm doing okay. This week was a big week for us. Our son Yaakov was Mitgayes. He was drafted into Shiryon, the tank corps of the Israeli army, which happened on Monday. That was a pretty emotional moment, and it was emotional all the way leading up to it. And then combining that with the fact that I'm thinking myself that he's a Kohen. I'm a Kohen, obviously. That the last time in that Kohen line that a member of our family was in a Jewish army was probably the army of the Maccabim before the original Hanukkah over 2,000 years ago. Wow, that's something. How about you? How are you doing? 
<laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, is a good answer. Thank God we're doing we're doing great, and also struggling really, uh, really seriously as well. I believe that all of us, at least most people at this point, are sort of between two poles. There's awful and okay. I'm not sure anyone's feeling really great, although maybe I'm wrong, and I hope some people are and are able to compartmentalize that way, which is why I wanted Rev Duda to talk to you today, because here we are recording on the first day of Hanukkah. This is a Chag that seems to have lots of parallels, at least externally, to the situation in which we find ourselves fighting an enemy in the land of Israel. There's anti-Semitism, there's assimilation and people sort of discovering their Jewish roots we see across the world and announcing their Jewishness in ways that they may not have done before. So many reasons that we can look at Hanukkah and say that "Mm -hmm, some of these events seem to be repeating themselves, or at least there are parallels that we can look at. I wanted to ask you to see what lessons you are discovering in Hanukkah that might be applicable to people in 2023 who are struggling as you mentioned before, who are trying to find that light in the darkness. If you look at Hanukkah, what messages would you derive from that Chag that are applicable today? So everything that you're saying resonates, that's for certain. I don't know that uh, I've ever connected so much to the words of Al-Hanisim as uh, as we are right now. Al-Hanisim, Valapurkan, asking God and recognizing uh, ourselves and asking for for miracles and, and victory in war. Um, the liturgy of Hanukkah. I mean, we just we just started Hanukkah, but but even one even one night and one morning of Hanukkah, um, it has never never resonated uh, as as relevant. By I mean, not to go all in, but I mean, last night lighting candles, we had a similar experience, like you and I were talking about off camera, like almost a split screen dual reality of holding different emotions and feelings at the same time. We had, thank God, two two daughters who were married in the last uh, half a year. One, thank God, had uh, her husband come home uh, for Shabbos Hanukkah. So he got out uh, yesterday and they were able to light Hanukkah candles together the first time uh, in their married life. That was, uh, well, they're, they're both Hanukkah souls and they're able to go to their apartment that they haven't been in since Simchas Torah and uh, fulfill Ne'er Ishu Beito and uh, be there together in Karen Biavna and, and uh, bask in the light together and and, and another daughter who, whose husband is somewhere in Gaza, newly married. Uh, and two days after Sheva Brachas, husband went uh, to war on some Torah and has only been home once since then. And uh, her parents, uh, who are dear friends and, and extraordinary people, uh, real people of, of spirit, brought over his menorah last night for her for her to light. And, uh, you know, when she made Bayamim Mahemba's Manazeh, it took it took all of us a little while to get through that bracha, to 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 cry through that bracha and breathe through that bracha and hold it together. And and then Shehechianu, that we were fortunate to make it to this moment. You know, it's a lot of emotions at once. And uh, the story of the Maccabean revolt and gvura and strength and faith and struggle uh, for Eretz Israel and for the soul of Eretz Israel uh, is is like you said, as as real as it's ever been. Uh, for any of us in our lifetimes, that's for certain. That's really intense. It's all happening. Yeah, and it's all happening. And we ate a ton of latkes. <laughs> Compartmentalizing. <laughs> yeah, we had a ton of latkes and listened to the new Thank You Hashem uh, Hanukkah up mix. And that was awesome. And, um, you know, Svinjim and Sufganiyot. And and it's and it was beautiful and lichtig and fun. And, you know, and we laughed also. I mean, it was all of it happening at the same time. All of it in the, in the big elastic Jewish heart. You know, it's uh, there's there's room. Uh, it's just sometimes challenging to 
you know, to be able to hold that together. Well, Rav Judah, how do you make that happen? I know that might be a personal question, but how are you able to make that compartmentalization where you're saying that my son-in-law has been since two days after Shavuot, basically in Gaza or on the border of Gaza, barely seen his wife. They've mamash been married two and a half months and they've been together for a week and, and change. How are you able to go into Hanukkah and have Simcha? And frankly, I mean, every day we look at the news and even when the news is good, it's always tinged with sadness. Even the good stuff, we're losing precious Jewish neshamas and people dying in a war, which we did not choose. How are you able to make that split, that split screen? I mean, it's really, I mean, I'm, I'm just watching them. I haven't really found much inspiration in, in most of the people who are sharing chizuk these days, to be honest with you. Um, I think we we said that when we saw each other in the supermarket last week. In, uh, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not, it's just not the message for the most part is not resonating. I don't mean that cynically. I just, um, um, and, uh, but I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm watching our kids, watching this next generation, experiencing this, first of all, as a very self-centered and selfish person, watching the news and eating my bamba and looking over maps at weird hours of the night, you know, alternatively saying to him, and also cursing under my breath, to be honest with you, you know, trying to fill a hole of feeling helpless and trying to hold on to some semblance of emuna and, and trying to piece it all together. And, and at the same time, I'm seeing my kids, our kids, you know, going through it for real um, and uh, and seeing their clarity and their faith and their struggle also, to be honest with you, and their anger, seeing their their, their anger and their grief and and. Uh, and being so proud of all of that together as, um, you know, as, as, as like, we, we, we know how to do this, meaning we have in our national collective memory, we have a lot of experience, a lot of trauma and a lot of darkness to light uh, metaphor and, and real life experience. We, we, we do. I mean, we said last night and we sang Mao's tour. Uh, I mean, people have been singing Pesach songs the last couple of months over here. You know, there wasn't a Shiva house that I was in. There wasn't that the, the people weren't that, that kept coming up again and again. Singing Mao's Tzur last night was something, I mean, I, again, it was so real. Um, it's not a, This is not a drill. And could, can't help but feel that we are that last stanza that hasn't yet been written. And our kids and our families uh, and our collective experience here in Eretz Israel today, and, and, and also all those in, in the world, all those good Jews in the world who are facing Eretz Israel and who are experiencing it, you know, in the way that they are in a very real way. Uh, from there together, uh, all of us, you know, we, we, we're that last stanza that's being written now. I mean, it's it's that new parak in Tanakh, and it's the new stanza of the piyut, of the pismon, of, of Ma'oz Tzur, that, that here it's taking place. The chizik is just that this is so real, that the Ribbon Shalom has chosen us and granted us the privilege to be the ones who are, you know, acting out this, this incredible last seen in, in the narrative of Jewish history in Mitz Hashem, the last generation of exile and that first generation of redemption and and watching our kids live it and be it uh, and manifest it. I mean, manifest it is so beautiful. Seeing their, their Jewish pride and their clarity, they wouldn't trade this for anything. They wouldn't trade this for anything. It was never, there, there, there's nowhere in the world I, I ask them, and I've, I've continued to ask them, there's nowhere in the world they'd rather be and no other way they'd want it. I mean, their husband's home, but the, the, the desire for 
for victory and for, for holy Jewish vengeance and reclamation and Jewish pride and symbols and language is awesome. It's so awake. It's so real. It's so good and 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 heavy and heavy. But I'm watching them. I'm 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 not. I'm watching them. I'm I'm following them. You know, I have the exact same experience with Judah because when I see my daughter Tali, whose husband Shai has been in Gaza for much of the past two months, he's actually home for Shabbos today for the first time in two months since Simchas Torah. That was the last time he was home for Shabbos. And yet, when I write to her, I'll say, "Tali, how are you doing?" She says, "Great. How are you doing?" Now, I know it's not easy for her. It's very, very hard for her. And she spent a lot of time in our house, and now she's at her own apartment because she has work and she has school. But seeing her say great gives me chizuk. Seeing that ability to not just wallow, even though I'm sure there's plenty of wallowing going on, but that ability to. There's a pasuk that we cite at the beginning of Perik Chelek. In the Mishnah there, we also say it when we say Perkei Avot. The pasuk goes, kulam tzadikim Your nation is entirely righteous. They will forever inherit the land. And while Chazal used this pasuk to prove that all of Israel have a share in the world to come, I think in addition to that, looking at the younger generation now, looking at our kids, looking at their friends, looking at that entire group of people willing to put their lives on the line for the sake of Am Yisrael, I think they're the tzaddikim. Your nation is entirely tzaddikim. Your nation is entirely righteous. And in their merit, the merit of those tzaddikim, the people going to war and their family supporting them, their wives supporting them, their husbands supporting them, they will forever inherit the land. We will inherit Eretz Israel because of their sacrifices, because of their commitment. I really think this is a moment of, as it says, this is the time when the children and the parents come together, each one giving chizuk to the other. We try to teach our children from the wisdom that we've acquired, hopefully, over the time that we've been on this earth. And we achieve so much inspiration by looking at the children and seeing what they're able to do and how they're able to move forward in ways that we just can't without them. I wonder if that's really what's going on. It's called process of Gula. And Yamsuf, which is really the only liturgy on a day-to-day basis that I'm really, really connecting with. It, that's, for me, the Hashem Yishmo Chama, Hashem Shemo, the, the song of war and the, 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 the recognition that part of our day-to-day narrative is miraculous. Um, and just the, the, incredible, the incredible splitting of the sea, the unexpected breaking of the conceptia of like what we think we have strategy and here's what's on the table and here's how we could do it. And then, bam, the Ribbon Shalom comes up with like something that wasn't on the table. Not, none of the experts on the right or the left go back to Mitzrayim. Oh, let's drown ourselves. Let's fight. Let's call it. There's this whole other way that wasn't being thought of. And then it's not us. It was Na'arenu uviskenenu neilich. Usually we, we follow our elders. We stand for our elders. We, they're closer to Harsinai. They have experience. Mipnei seva tokum. But in Gula, in the process of Gula and Bayamsuf, we learn it. And I think that's what's happening now is Benarenu We're following after the, the intuition of the youth and the will of the nation that's revealed by the Bnei Hanavim, by, by this new generation that's coming. You see, you see the people who, I don't, I don't I, again, I'm not a politician. I'm not a military analyst. I'm, I'm not uh, an expert in any of these things. I'm like another another one of these guys who who you know stands outside the mikvah and thinks that they know everything. And I, you know, I keep saying I leave my phone on in case Gallant or BB is going to call and ask my opinion, and then I can like give them a little bit of a TED talk about you know Dresden and, and morality and and David Amelech and Yehoshua and 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 Shimshon and I, you know, no one's interested. I, no one no one's certainly in my house interested. But what I what I do know is that there's an awakening of the intuition of the nation 
that really expresses the divine will and I think a revelation of prophecy in, in especially in the youth and you see in our soldiers and, and in their and in their spouses and their partners and, and and this awakening from below, not from above, not international policy, not foreign policy, not textbook stuff, not sismote, but just the the basic Jewish desire to to and readiness to sacrifice and however that dreidel lands to just keep going. And, and, and whatever that darkness is, to just go and illuminate. And whatever that enemy is, no matter how big, no matter how great, no matter how perverse and evil and cruel and sadistic that a Malachite manifestation is in our judgment, to go and to, to linkom, nikom, nikmas dam, like we're singing in, 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 in Hanukkah, which is part of the Hanukkah story, which is part of Yamsuf, is, is part of Yamsuf, is seeing the Egyptians drowned and seeing Paro and our enemies, all of our fears and all of our traumas drowned and seeing all of our enemies that crushed us and that, that sought to, to wipe out our Shabbos and our, our Brismila and our covenant, seeing them fallen, that's part of it. Calling out evil, seeing our children with that clarity, that willingness to go out to war, that's Na'arenu. That's that 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 that's that's following. I'm I'm I, I'm I'm following. I'm following the artists and the musicians who are awakening a new renaissance of the holy in the land of Israel with our troops on on the front lines. I think that our generation has to, and the people above us, has to shave b'sheket. All the people who got us, who, who all the kochi ve'etzem yodi, and all the experts who ended us up with this conceptio, with all this, we have to all be quiet and make way for a new generation that's being reborn, that has holy intuition. That has a renewed spirit, the spirit of the Maccabees, the spirit of uh, of Nachshon uh, at Yamsuf, and uh, and to follow, and to follow. I think you're right. That really does resonate. One thing which I'll say as well: you talk about that holy Jewish soul and trying to get back into Shmiratamis Fod, keeping God's Torah. There's also something else, though, which may not be on that same or that same exact aspect. But the awakening of Judaism and the recognition of Judaism among people who, they're not going to be Shomer Torah Mitzvot, but they're very proud of their Judaism in ways that at least I find surprising. I'll just talk about certain people, I'm not going to mention names, but whether they're celebrities or just random people who were Jewish and you never would have known except that you look on their Wikipedia page and you see that they had a Jewish mother. But now what you do is you see on Twitter, you see on Facebook, and they're posting constantly and speaking out and defending Israel and defending Am Yisrael. Let our let my portion be with them. I, 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 this year, I don't know. I'm going to say, how, how you, I don't mean bad. I'm not saying, how are you going to squeeze out another drasha about Hanukkah being Torah and 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 all the chassidus and medrashim and 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 vart. Another, you can talk about a hundred thousand ways to answer the question about the pach shemen. It's all good and it's all true and it's all beautiful and it's nitzchis and it's always relevant and it's very meaningful. But but so is so is the, the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song resonates and, and and we could write we can write a hundred new ones. We could write a hundred new Hanukkah songs about the awakening of the Jewish self and spirit and identity that's taking place. I mean, and 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 every kid playing dreidel who doesn't know the difference between the osios, uh, whether it's Neskadol Hayasham or Neskadol Po, can tell you that the greatest academics and presidents of these biggest Greek universities in the United States are Rishayim, and they're Nazi sympathizers, and they're wrong, and they're on the wrong side of history, and they're Rishayim. Every child, every Jewish child who, who doesn't know whether Tefillin Shalyad goes here or Tefillin Shalosh goes there and couldn't tell you Masechus this or Masechus that knows that there's light and there's darkness. You sing Hanukkah, an awakening, 
Halavai, if I had to fill out a form about how I identify now, if I see myself as modern Orthodox, centrist Orthodox, right-wing Orthodox, uh, from Datilumi, Toranilumi, Chardalumi, Dijon Mustard, Neo-Hasidic, that and the other, Halavai be mechabed masoret. I want to identify as someone who respects masoret. Mechabed masoret, who believes in the Jewish people, who believes in our collective destiny, who believes in the simplicity of, 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 a, of, of a, a candlelight, Versus an immense darkness, and shmiras hamitzvahs and halacha and and that hasn't changed. It doesn't change. But like you're saying, you're seeing an awakening of the Jewish spirit and the Jewish self, which is so real and so strong. And Amir Tzashem will be able to give build some foundations under it with education and 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 with uh, some staying power with with Torah and with mitzvahs. But but let's celebrate it. Let's let's be let's be proud of that Yiddishkeit. Of, of the someone who stands up in the face of a free Palestine rally and just yells back at them and says, go away or go to hell. I mean, there, there's something, there's a milah Hashem lie in that. To, to hear the call of the shofar of the Kohen Mashuach Lemilchama in Klal Yisrael standing up, whatever the details are, you know, before, during and after in their Jewish practice, to get up and just stand up with light against that darkness is so Jewish. It's so Mashiachtic. It's so it's so Naarenu vis Kenenu Nelech into the you know in, into the the unknown of the of the Yamsuf. It's such a Muna. It's so it's so the awakening of the latent Jewish soul. It's so Chanukahdik. And that idea that it's so a Muna. You know, it's not easy. It's very easy for me. I live in Israel. I only talk to Orthodox Jews most of the day when I walk back and forth. You know, religious diversity here in Mapei Chemish means how high is your machitza? That's religious diversity. When you're a celebrity who has a career on the line. And you go up against your friends and say, I'm going to stand for something that's right and I'm going to go against something that's wrong. You're actually putting yourself on the line and seeing them fighting and not caring and writing constantly, I think is something that's very, very beautiful. I think of the fact that, you know, Al Kabbalah, we say that Knesset Israel, the assembly of Israel, is somehow on some mystical level equated with the divine presence, with the Shekhinah. And something about that Shekhinah in all of us is awakened and it's expressing itself. It's healthy. It's called being healthy. It's called restoring health. Rabbi Nachman says that Hanukkah is a time of Bikr Cholim. Because the light of the Shekhinah generally doesn't... We don't put our tefillin on the floor, God forbid. You don't leave a, a Jewish book, a safer on the floor. We say that the floor is not a place where the Divine Presence rests. Even in the Mikdash, there's until 10 Tfachim above from the ground. But in Hanukkah, the light reaches all those lowest places. And there's the custom of the, of the Arizal. So what we do here is to light Hanukkah candles closer to the floor to recognize and represent that light reaches all of those low places. So Rabbi Nachman says that that whenever we do Yontif, we do Shabbos, we try to elevate ourselves, right? We want to transcend and reach the highest places and, so to speak, get to that, that metaphoric base HaMikdash energy. And we lift ourselves out of our current reality and go there. We, we put on Yontif clothing and we change certain laws and certain things in our house and certain practices. And then we try to elevate and transcend ourselves to go to that holy place. Hanukkah, wherever we're lighting candles, the Rebona Shalom is coming to us. That place is transformed into the Makam HaMikdash, into our own little base HaMikdash. Low to the ground, Achatichla Regel Min Hashuk. We determine the time of lighting from the Turmadayim, these mysterious Gentiles. What does that have to do with holiness? There's no place that's devoid of holiness. And there's no experience that's devoid of holiness. And there's no darkness that can't be illuminated. Chanukah is a time where Hashem is coming down to us, so to speak. And Rabbi Nachman says that it's a, an experience of Bikr Cholim. 
God is coming to visit us in our almost sickened exile state that we that we, we we don't have the mikdash, we don't have the holy temple. So we're in our own little homes and our own places, unable to break out of that exile. And we feel, at least I'm feeling this year, that when Hashem is so to speak coming to to Bikracholim and visit us in our exiled state, it's already starting to shift. And um, and temple consciousness and future consciousness and reclamation and rebuilding consciousness and restoration consciousness uh, and, and, and a new health. We're shedding this old skin of being victimized, this old skin of being beaten. And please believe us that they raped our women. Please believe us that they burnt our children. Please believe us. Look, here's a picture of that. To stop, get off our knees and stop begging the world to, 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 to feel bad for us. To have a little bit of that Maccabean spirit and say, Here's what we stand for. Here's what we here's what we are. We're light. Ner mitzvah, Torah or values, you know, goodness and a healthy Jewish spirit, you know, so to speak, takes says to Bonshom, thank you so much for coming to visit me in my house. Let, let, let's go to your house. Let, let, let's rebuild. Let, let's go to Shalim together and and and, and make you Shalim Oro Shal Olam. Let, let's let the world all, all these all these liars and 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 Rishayim, all of the world is like busy blaming the Jews and pointing fingers at us. Let's give them something to look at. Let's show them what it is to take care of each other, what it is to live ethically, to live in, in a moral way, what it is to live erlich, what it is to live with chesed, what it is to live taking care of one another, to smile, to not be brokenhearted and, and sad. Like, like Tali said, great. Like our children, are, 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 it's painful and challenging and we're all carrying such heaviness. And after this is all over, we still have to sit shiva over, over over all of the over the massacres of Simchas Torah, and we still have to finish Hakafos. We have a lot still yet to do. We're in the middle of this now, but but, but we're doing it besimcha. We're doing it besimcha. This we have to be filled with the spirit that the world should see that this is what the Amanivchar looks like. And if we take a moment and, and take a deep breath before we light these candles, we we'll recognize that just by fulfilling the basic minhagim and the basic laws, the the symbols and 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 the foods and the, and the sounds and the expressions of Hanukkah in our houses, wherever we are, exactly the way it is, right after work, in the middle of everything, we're already being victorious. We're already won. I love that. That's fantastic. I keep thinking back to something that you said about 10 or 15 minutes ago about the nature of Kriyat Yamsuf, splitting of the sea. People at the time were thinking we should go forward, we should go back. That was an idea, splitting of the sea, walking through the sea that never even occurred to the vast majority of them. It wasn't even an option. It wasn't even something on the table. You see, we already know the story. We already say that every day in Shacharit. So we're used to the idea that, yes, of course, that's what's going to happen. But at the time, they had no precedent for them. This was a brand new Yeshme Ayin type of thing, something which had never happened before and suddenly was happening. And I wonder, what is our Kriyat Yamsuf going to be? Is there going to be something that's outside the box that's going to help solve the situation? Is it going to be something that's within the box? We just don't know yet. And sometimes it's hard to even know what to dive in for and what to expect when the inspiration is over and we have to look forward. So let me ask a final question to you. When Hanukkah is over, a week from now, how do we carry some of that light with us? What do you think we should do moving forward? I don't know. I don't know. I'm working on the. I'm working on on, on this. What's happening now? I mean, I'll be honest. That we were about to light candles yesterday. I said, "Oh, you know what? Let me just go daven." I don't know. I said. I, I had already davened Mincha. And I said, oh, you know what? Let me let me go daven. And I just went for a walk. And it was the roads, the streets were empty. Like you said, this is a this is a neighborhood where people take their observance seriously. There was literally no one on the street. It was around as month, except for people lighting candles and singing Maoz tour from all the apartments on Dolev. And I just walked around Dolev and I cried. And 
I said, Ribbono Shalom, help us give it, give koach, just give koach, give strength to be able to, I mean, I said almost the words of Gatfan Avram from the, 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 the Havdalah prayer from the Levi Tzgabar said, just give us strength to believe in you, give us strength to strengthen each other, give us strength to, 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 to do this yantif, to, to taste its sweetness, to enjoy its light, to just give us strength to, to not do this the same way we did it last year. Let's not, I don't want to, it's not the same Hanukkah. It's not the same Hanukkah. I'm not the same person. Let me not be the same person. Let this not be the same Hanukkah. And I just said it over and over again and and, and cried it out and, and, and it was felt so exhausted over it, you know, and then walked around, did a Sivuv Dolev, you know, the whole thing. Passed by Masas Mordechai, Dor Davening, passed by Yisrael, you know, everybody. And I just, uh, you know, I stood by the door for a couple of minutes and I stood before I went in and just kind of stood by the mezuzah there and I asked the Rebona Shalom, just give strength to be able to experience this Hanukkah like it's really, really happening. I have no idea what's going to happen after Hanukkah. I'm still, I'm, I'm going to hold the Rebona Shalom to this. We want a miracle. We want Al Hanisim. We want a miracle. Rabin Ba'ad Ma'at. I want Tameim Ba'ad Tahorim. I want Zaydim Ba'ad Oskei Tavasecha. I want to see it. Not a Purim level miracle. Maybe the, the Bnei Haman, you know, Rov Banav Kinyanav, all of their that would be nice to see them hanging. I would that would actually that would be a that would be something. I don't know if I'm a tzaddik enough to appreciate, you know, Chazanakam, but I would be very gratified to see hangings. But I want we want a big miracle, and Hashem can do it. Hashem can do it. It, it doesn't matter as great as Caroline Glick is, and as and as big insights as my father has into geopolitics, and as much as all the columnists and all these great experts had about the disengagement and about the conception and Harta'a and the Judean Samaria. Everybody with all their big expertise on the right and on the left and all the big think tanks. Hashem Ishmochama. Hashem Shemal. The Ribbon Shalom could reveal himself in a moment in a way that we never expected. And all the armies surrounding Yushalayim could just go poof. And there could be some type of miracle that none of us expect and know about that I believe is part of our our uh, collective toolbox, I mean, it's part of God's toolbox. It's part of our cash. We're allowed to hope for such a thing. You know, uh, we'll spin the dreidel and say, whatever it lands on, you have another side to this. It's not just four-sided. You have a whole other side, a whole other dimension that's outside in time and time and space. So just do it. You know, it's not just sour cream or uh, or applesauce. <laughs> Figure it out. Shalom can do it. I'm just trying so much to be able to hope for that. And by the time Hanukkah is over, God willing, you know, all of the, we'll, we'll be able to wipe away all of this and 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 be able to have a real nechama, and uh, and I guess we'll cross that bridge that, that 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 hopefully won't be so narrow by the time we get to it. Amen, Rav Judah. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you and to hear your words of chizuk of encouragement, especially now at a time when it's so necessary. I thank you so much for speaking with me and speaking with everyone listening. Thank you, and uh, we should do, we should be blessed. We should be blessed with revealed good and revealed miracles. Rav Yonah Bookstein is the rabbi of Pico Shul, founder and director of Shabbat Tent, and someone who has been involved in many outreach activities over the past 25 years, including a significant amount of time spent in Eastern Europe. Rabbi Yonah Bookstein, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It's always a treat and an honor whenever I have a chance to speak with you. Well, unfortunately, people didn't get the chance to listen to our pre-interview talk when two old friends got a chance to really catch up and talk about what we really think. But maybe we'll reveal some of it in the following conversation. And what I want to talk about today, we're recording this on the first night of Hanukkah. Hanukkah seems to have a lot of parallels to what's going on in Israel right now. Obviously, there's some things that aren't the same, but the issue of Israel at war with an enemy 
an enemy that wants to wipe out Jews and Judaism, the fact that people are experiencing anti-Semitism that's overriding in some ways their assimilation across the world, these are all themes that seem to me to be implicit within Hanukkah. So Rav Yonah, I wanted to ask you if you could give some messages to our audience today about Hanukkah, how you look at Hanukkah, what ideas you are drawing from Hanukkah that could serve as chizuk, as a form of encouragement that people can think about when relating to the events of the day. It's a very, a very dark time for the Jewish people, but it's also a dark time for the world. We have to always look at the enormity of the issues that the world faces. And I'm particularly, particularly want us to think about on this Hanukkah, not just the darkness that we are experiencing as a Jewish people. Because I I believe that, you know, you referenced Hanukkah's connection, you know, to current events, and all of Hanukkah's connections to current events is, is, is real. But it's not just happening to us. And the world is experiencing a a darkness. Let me explain what I mean. Whenever truth is called a lie and a lie is called truth, whenever we can't distinguish between right and wrong, whenever our moral compass is completely messed up, when when an actual compass no longer points north, right? You don't know what direction. So you see that we are living in a time when things are really confusing and dark. Within that, right, the Jewish people are experiencing their own extreme darkness. Thousands of people marching without any fear, calling for the destruction of the Jewish state, emboldened now in ways that like we've never, ever seen since Rahmulatsan, a time in pre-Holocaust Europe, when there were such marches in countries, you know, declaring uh, the Jews as the enemy of of the nation, right? So, but this is happening within a bigger context. So, why do I feel that's important? Because the mitzvah that most of us are connected to most closely, right, with Hanukkah, is we light this menorah. Yes, we do have Hallel, but if you're not a shul going person, so you you miss Hallel and shul. Yes, in benching we re- reference, you know, in the Birkatama zone and the, the the prayer after after we eat. Right, we we reference Elanisim, but if you're not a praying person, you're going to miss out on these aspects and some other ones of uh, that are specific to Hanukkah. Your main connection is lighting the menorah, and the menorah is an ancient advertisement which is referencing a miracle at a time of great darkness. So I want to think about what does a Hanukkah, what does a menorah do in a time of darkness for the world and not just for the Jewish people. It is a reminder that a little bit of the light that we hold on to, the real truth of the universe, ultimately will persevere. That's one. Another piece is has to do with light. And I really want to talk about the power of light. You know, we say in the bracha, we say in the blessing, in those days at this time, the blessing we use to light the menorah. There are other times in the Jewish calendar where there's also miracles and salvation, but on on Hanukkah and also on Purim, we see this, we have a permanent connection to this uh, miracle. 
The day of Hanukkah is a day of salvation, and it's been fixed for every generation. I want to just dig down on this point for a moment. Rabbi uh, Eliyahu Kitov speaks about this beautiful connection, Hanukkah and Purim, and he says like this, Pesach brings forth the light of freedom. Shavuos, the light of Torah. Sukkot, the light of rejoicing. And the days of awe, the light of forgiveness and atonement. It is for this reason that the blessing we recite on Purim and on Hanukkah praises God for having performed miracles for our ancestors in those days and at this time. The miracles that took place then continue to illuminate our lives now. There is a light that goes back uh, several thousand years, which continues to burn in the world, which continues to, sh to, sh to shed light on humanity. I want us to, when we light our menorahs this year, to, to go way, way, way back, all the way to that time of when it was moments before Judaism was erased. It was almost over. It was almost over. And draw great strength from that. Can you go into a little bit more depth? Explain what is that light? Do you think that light represents truth of Judaism? Does it represent God's presence in the world? When you want us to go back to that light, that light from 2,100 whatever years ago that was lit by the Maccabim, that was lit in the Beit HaMikdash, what is that light that we are supposed to emulate today? What are we supposed to see in that light? It's not just about, uh, right, the, uh, you know, a kind of a physical light. It is that the Jewish people have an eternal quality and we have an eternal mission. And Hashem is never going to let that finish until the end of days. Fear, it can incapacitate people, right? We, we like the deer in the headlights, right? As Jews, we can't be deers in the in and look at the anti-Semitism which is exploding around the world. We can't become fearful and stop our mission, stop our living as Jews, stop anything. We rather, it is a reminder that we are a critical part of the world. We're a critical part of the world, and we shouldn't feel like somehow we're this appendage that the world is going to be able to uh, eliminate. Uh, and the fact that many people seem to want to do us in should not dishearten us about being a Jew. Uh, it's very easy to become quite uh, disheartened. Uh, I've spoken to people who really are down about the whole thing. Yes, there are some people who uh, whose response has been to uh, raise the banner high, um, uh, but there are also many, many people who I think feel uh, forsaken. They feel God has abandoned us. God forbid, right? They feel like maybe this time Amalek is going to be uh, finally, you know, victorious. Uh, people, some people have really, uh, are really, really down. Hanukkah is a is a reminder that uh, the at the the lowest at the lowest points that we've been as a people. I'm reminded of uh, of the story that Rip Shlomo used to say about the the Jew who you know risked his life to light the candle in Auschwitz. You know, uh, what business does he have trying to to do that? You know, he, he risked he risked his in, entire life. It's an incredible story, and he gets he gets beaten 
you know, to a pulp and they think he's dead, you know. Meanwhile, the next day, he pulls out another candle that he's manufactured from saved wax, you know. And, and does you know, it all over again. And he does it, he does it all over again, right? There we have to know that the Jewish story is 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 not in jeopardy, that Judaism is not in jeopardy. And we are an eternal people. Netzach Israel, we are. I we're going through the 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 don't even have a good analogy. What we're going through is just the Shreklech, right? It's a it's a horrible, horrible and, and challenging time. But within that oppression that we are seeing is an opportunity to refocus ourselves on our mission as Jews. And remember, of course, because we pass in like Beit Hillel, which means that every day we go up in light, sometimes, as you say, it's dark out and you start off with only one candle. And just building on what Rav Yoni, you just said, starting off with that one candle means the next night you're going to have even more. And then it can spread even more and the light will increase as as it goes on. I think it's also interesting what you mentioned, this idea of is Klal Yisrael a mere appendage to the world that shouldn't necessarily exist? What difference does it make if we're here or not? And obviously, we as Jews don't accept that perspective. There is, however, some reality to it, meaning when we talk about the 70 nations that came out of Noah, you can count them up in Parsha Noah. Israel isn't there. Jews aren't there. And in fact, I once heard one of my teachers say that at the moment of the Akedah, because Avraham didn't do it, because Yitzchak survived— that was the person who wasn't supposed to be part of the world, who was sort of added on to the world, brought into the world. Yitzchak is the nation that wasn't supposed to be here, but somehow is anyway. So even though we say maybe we are an appendage, but we're God's appendage, the one that he asked us, that he is inserting into the world and saying the world can't survive if this Yitzchak that then continued through Yaakov and his children doesn't exist also. That's what I was thinking at that time when you were mentioning what you were saying. Beautiful. And, and I want to, uh, uh, not everybody is going to be able to uh, take Hanukkah and, you know, uh, rally around it in the same way. So I want to offer another perspective for people on this Hanukkah. The light of Hanukkah is not necessarily, right, something which, why we do, we we do Pirsumenisa, we put it out there, but we, when you learn Halacha, actually, right, we see, and I love how, I love learning the insights of Hanukkah from the Halacha. It's key that the people of our home see the menorah, right? That's the the, the the ikka, right? Yeah, it's great that we have one outside, but if the people of the home can't uh, uh, can't see the menorah, then you know we probably haven't done it right. Um, in other words, that the, that the place the light is needed the most is within ourselves. We need to uh, uh, take time to uh, recharge our inner light, our inner ability to, to give to others. We need to, for those who are feeling... Uh, forlorn, or or for those who feel who need healing, and there's so many people who need healing. I, I just encourage them to use Hanukkah to like to power up their neshamas and be very very uh, methodical almost about it. Right? Really be be very kavanadik. You know, spend time looking at the lights uh, that you light. Spend time with them. Uh, don't take them for granted. Let them heat up your soul. Right, and this is. And then you will be the you will carry that light forward into uh, you, you, everything that you do from then on. Uh, there's a real um, power in those lights. They're they're not stam. They're not just these little lichtika. They're really they have enormous enormous spiritual potential. And the more time we spend with them, and we we the more we put into them, the more I believe it can really bring 
to every single Jew, wherever they are, a a, a charge of their to their soul. Wow, that's beautiful. Let me tell you, Yona, what gave me a charge to my soul tonight when I was lighting. You see, you're in California. You ha- you haven't lit yet. I assume it's too early. But no, here. but I'm actually I'm, I'm looking right now at the place where we're light we're lighting. I'm, so I, I almost there. Our Hanukkah candles went out five hours ago. It's already almost one o'clock in the morning here. My son-in-law Shai, who has been in Gaza, came home surprisingly this morning. Tali said he's coming home today. So he sent us a picture. They lived in Migdal Lowe's in the Gush of him lighting the first night of Hanukkah, laying their candles. And just seeing that, he's there in his Madim, in his army uniform, his Sal uniform. They're leaning over and lighting the Hanukkah candles outside in his Hanukkah box, as they do here in Israel. And seeing that, seeing someone who's fighting for Am Yisrael, and he's really been in there. He's been deep in Gaza doing real stuff. He's gone for weeks without being able to talk to the outside world. And for him to come out and light a Hanukkah candle, to me, I look at that and I say, that's why we're doing this. He knows. He's, on the one hand, fighting for Am Yisrael, Be'eret Yisrael, Alpitarat Yisrael. He's fighting for all of that. And then to come out and actualize it, going home to his wife, my daughter Tali, and being able to light candles, that's what gave me Chizuk tonight. Shai Yaakov Benyel should uh, continue to uh, bring light to his family uh, and the Jewish people. Amen. Amen. Okay, Yona, before we go, can you add a final thought to our listeners about Hanukkah? I implore every Jew to look at the Hanukkah time now as a, a real special opportunity. You know, somebody said to me, ah, oh, but you know, Yona, really, Hanukkah is like a, it's a minor holiday, you know, and that they only make a big deal of it because of, of Xmas. And, uh, and so people today, they want to feel like, uh, you know, that they have something to compete. So they make a big deal about Hanukkah, but really it's just a, a minor, uh, you know, minor holiday. And and I I've heard this you know uh, from time to time oh you know over the years you know uh, whatever it is it is okay we live now we live in the now we don't live in the in another time this is the only time we live in and so whatever Hanukkah whatever it is it's something that we so deeply so deeply need right now as a people. Everybody talks about the Jewish unity, which has come from this horrific situation in Israel and around the world. Our response to it has been multifold. Many people doing all different kinds of things. Actually, right now on Hanukkah is the first time since the war began in a way when Jews of all backgrounds and all observance levels and all political religious, ethnic backgrounds. It's the first time we're going to actually have real, real unity. What do I mean? We're all doing the same thing. We're all lighting the menorah. Although we've all been unified in our spirit in a way, right? We've all been unified in our you know, deep love, many of us, for, for each other in a way that we, we just took each other for granted before. But now we're going to have an act that every single Jew is doing around the world, please God, uh, for the next eight days. That is a very, very powerful thing. Uh, we have to just recognize that and latch on to that and be empowered in our own lives. And please God, that that unity of all of us now will overcome this Hester Punim, this darkness. Maybe this was the tipping point of every Jew lighting their menorah. This will be the, the tipping point we need to bring about a uh, Geula Shlema, Bimhe Ramenu. 
in particular, Yona, the very fact that, as you mentioned, Hanukkah is the Chag that so many people do, perhaps because of assimilationist tendencies. I don't care the reason why. Bottom line is, though, so many, most Jews actually are going to light a Hanukkah candle. But unlike other things, like, for example, one guy davens Nusach Sfar, another guy davens Nusach Ashkenaz, another guy davens Eidot Mizrach. Lighting a candle is an identical act for every single person. It's identical. It's identical. Lighting a candle is something which everyone does exactly the same way. It's not just that so many Jews, almost all Jews, are celebrating Hanukkah, as that we're all celebrating it fundamentally by lighting that candle in the same basic way. Now, generally, I think that variety is the spice of life, as I heard Rav Schechter one time say, multiplicity in the ways that we keep halacha is a good thing. It's something that should be celebrated. On the other hand, it's also important that once in a while, we have something that we all do exactly the same to remind us of that unity that you so beautifully expressed before. So thank you. You give me a lot to think about over the next nights of Hanukkah. Such a pleasure to be with you, Scott. Yonez, I'm sure my listeners know you're my brother. You're one of my favorite people. And it's always so nice to have you on. So thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Blessings for you and your family and for all of your listeners. And uh, can't wait to be back with you another time. Dr. Malka Z. Simkovich is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and the Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Her first book, The Making of Jewish Universalism from Exile to Alexandria, was published in 2016, and her second book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories that Shaped Early Judaism, was published in 2018 and received the 2019 AJL Judaica Reference Honor Award. Malka's articles have been published in journals such as the Harvard Theological Review and the Journal for the Study of Judaism, and on mainstream forums such as the Times of Israel and the Jewish Review of Books. Her forthcoming book, Homeland and Diaspora in Jewish Antiquity, will be published in June 2024. Dr. Simkovich speaks widely to audiences across North America and beyond on the topics of the Hebrew Bible, Jewish history, and contemporary Jewish-Christian relations. Dr. Malka Simkovich, thank you very much for joining me yet again on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. The reason I say yet again is because the episodes that we've recorded together have been among my very favorites of all time, including one we did last year, episode 140, which was called The Real History of Hanukkah and Why It Matters Today. Some people might therefore ask, why are we talking about the same thing again? But every time I talk to you, I learn something new. So this is a treat for me. This is a Hanukkah gift for me. So let's start off then. I'd like to ask you, Malka, what are some of the ways that Hanukkah is used today that, in your opinion, are incorrect or inaccurate historically? In other words, what aspects of what we might call Orthodox Jewish Hanukkah ideology are mistaken? It's a great question, and uh, it's a subject that I have discussed with you, Scott, and with others in the past. Uh, The main misconception that I think many observant Jews have today is that Hanukkah is a story of an inevitable culture clash between Judaism and Hellenism. And that as soon as Jews in the ancient world were living under Hellenism, they were kind of hurtling towards this conflict and there was no way around it. Um, We know that when Alexander the Great died at the end of the fourth century BCE, Jews who found themselves living under Hellenism um, did so for almost 150 years before the Hasmonean revolts took place in 167 to 164 BCE. And, uh, you know, there's some nuance on both sides that I would like to introduce into the conversation, which is that this is not 
a conflict that involves all Greeks because after Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom splits into three parts and the Jews who are living in Judea after 200 BCE are living under the Syrian Greeks. And it's also not a conflict that involves all Jews because Antiochus for Epiphanes, Antiochus, is not trying to force the assimilation of all Jews in the Hellenistic world. He's forcing the assimilation of Jews in Judea. Now, I'm not minimizing or dismissing uh, what happens in Judea or even suggesting, as some scholars do, that it's merely a political move and it has nothing to do with how he feels about Judaism. I do think he was likely antagonistic towards Judaism. I do think this is more than mere politics, but it doesn't apply to all Jews. Um, and so what makes Hanukkah so interesting for me is that it's the first Jewish holiday, the first holiday that all Jews, I think, who are observant keep today, and maybe the only Jewish holiday that isn't about the existential survival of all people, because in the second century BCE, most Jews are not living in Judea. And so a very interesting question arises after the successful revolt. And that question is, is this a story really about all Jews? Meaning if you're a Jew in Alexandria and Egypt or in um, the Greek islands or in Antioch, are you meant to observe this holiday in acknowledgement that really it's a holiday which affirms the protection that God um, that God promises of you. And so this is a live question and it's not a question that um, reaches consensus right away. In what sense does it not reach consensus right away? Meaning how long did it take for, as far as we know, for it to become a universally observed holiday among Jews? It's a great question. We don't know for sure, but we have little hints that it takes a couple generations. We have some letters that Jews in Jerusalem wrote to Jews in Egypt at the end of the second century BCE, which begs them to observe the holiday. They call it the holiday of tabernacles in December, of Sukkot in December, because they don't have a name for it yet. Uh, another letter refers to it as the purification holiday. Uh, later, Josephus in the first century will call the holiday the holiday of lights. And of course, the rabbis call it Hanukkah. When you have so many different labels for one holiday, that suggests that there isn't a consensus about the meaning of the holiday. Uh, but, you know, a conservative answer to your question will be a couple generations at least. Okay. What's interesting is that in some ways we speak about parallelisms between what happened over 2,000 years ago and today. Today, I feel... We don't really know about everybody, but it seems that there is this sense of unity among Jews across the world, not just Jews in Israel, but Jews everywhere, even though right now Jews in Israel are the ones technically who've been attacked rather than Jews everywhere. Perhaps, though, the difference here is the means of communication, which makes life so much easier, transportation, as well as the fact that Jews are actually being attacked outside of Israel as well for being Jewish, at least verbally, this anti-Semitism that is being raised. So I wanted to ask about that anti-Semitism part of it for a moment. You mentioned that Antiochus, whether or not he was anti-Semitic might actually be, and I'm using this obviously modern term, but I'm using it as a catch-all to describe anti-Jewish animus, as opposed to simply not liking any subject people. You said that whether or not he is actually anti-Semitic is an open question. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yes. And again, like so many good questions, it's an open question among scholars. So there are scholars today who like to make a distinction between what they call anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. And here's the distinction that they make. And I'll just tell you before I explain this, I am a little cynical about this distinction. But the distinction is as follows. Anti-Judaism is the ancient critique of Jewish 
practices and ideas that truly are reflective of how a Jew would self-identify. In other words, anti-Judaism might critique um, the insularity that is required when a Jew observes a different calendar. Anti-Semitism, which some scholars argue comes out of Christianity and the writings of the church fathers in the third and fourth centuries, anti-Semitism is a set of conspiracies and myths about the Jews that transform the Jews into a nefarious group. And at the core of anti-Semitism is really a set of terrible lies. And so anti-Semitism is more a set of conspiracies. You know, the Jews are taking over the world or the Jews are penetrate society to uh, enslave us. And anti-Judaism is saying, no, we can all recognize the Jews have the set of practices. And we don't like that because that, is, that generates resentment or that makes them misanthropic or whatever. Um, now, these scholars will say in the Second Temple period, you don't really have anti-Semitism. That comes later. You have anti-Judaism. And so perhaps you could say Antiochus, again, the one we're talking about is Antiochus for Epiphanes, Antiochus, didn't have any sort of conspiracy against the Jews. He wasn't, you know, drawing uh, propaganda cartoons with the Jew holding the globe like Der Sturmer does in the 1930s. But he had what we might even say are legitimate complains about the Jews who under his rule refused to integrate like all the other communities that he had conquered. Now, I will I will just say I'm very cautious about this distinction because we do know that in the Hellenistic world, there were accusations against the Jews that I would consider to be, if not conspiracies and, you know, conspiracy adjacent, really problematic things were being said about the Jews at this early stage. Josephus cites them. So this binary between, oh, this is just anti-Judaism, almost as if it's kind of legitimate, and this is anti-Semitism, that's really bad. I'm not sure that I like that distinction, but it is there. And I think that the scholars who say this was just a political move to force the hand of the Judeans and make them become Greeks, I think that that is an overstatement. And I think it a little bit whitewashes, whitewashes what we know was quite real antagonism towards Jews on the part of many Greeks. Now, was that antagonism towards Jews something that was unique towards the Jewish people, or was it true for all subject peoples? In other words, was this something which was just any conquered people, we don't like them having their own customs, and that's true for any group, or was it something that was specifically directed towards Judea? And that's another huge question. I think connected to this big question of is a Jew hatred unique? I teach at Catholic Theological Union and I find that many of my wonderful, amazing students really fight this notion that Jew hatred is distinctive in any way. There's something, they have a kind of impulse to say, well, you know, all kinds of hatred are very bad and anti-Semitism is one of those terrible hatreds. But I'm not sure that I'm convinced by that. Um, I think that the policies of Antiochus towards the Jews were unique in a way because the Jews themselves were unique. And by that, I mean, you know, we're living in a time where there is this value, a cultural value for everyone to speak the same language, for everyone to be Greek, for there to be this monoculture, this one group of people, the, the Hellenists. And so when new cultures and ethnicities and communities are conquered, there's an expectation that they're going to take on 
these Hellenistic features. And I think, although I, you know, I'm not the world expert on the Hellenistic period, but I think that the Jews uniquely, at least those in Judea, uniquely resisted this integration. Maybe they weren't the only ones who resisted it, but they are the ones who most famously and vociferously resisted it. And because they're so resistant, and of course we could talk about all the internal strife and the internal conflict, and people like to tell me, don't you know there was a civil war in Judea and that led Antiochus to come in? Okay, I mean, we could talk about the various sources that talk about the civil strife, but ultimately I don't think you can get around the fact that there were Jews in Judea who were willing to die rather than to accept these Hellenistic norms. And that to me is a, a very extreme version of resistance. And because of that extreme version of resistance, Antiochus treated the Jews in an extreme way. So my inclination is to say this was a very unusual, maybe even a unique situation. You know, it's so interesting when you talk, going back to that distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism, when you first started talking about it, I thought you were talking about a modern distinction, meaning this is something which I know the Catholic Church a hundred years ago or so would often highlight, oh, we're not anti-Semitic, we're anti-Judaism, because yeah. you know there's nothing racially negative about Jews, but there's something terrible about the things that they believe. And then I realized as you spoke that you're speaking about a distinction that people are describing to describe Antiochus 2,100 whatever years ago. So it's just amazing how these things repeat themselves in history. Admittedly, he wasn't, he didn't care about the distinction, but the fact that people see that same, that same chiluk, the same distinction back then is something which amazes me in some ways. It is quite remarkable. Absolutely. Let's go back into the concept of assimilation, because you mentioned before that for quite a long time before Hanukkah took place, before the events of Hanukkah took place, Judaism and Hellenization seemed to be not such a problem. People were getting along fine. And it was only when there was, I guess, enforced Hellenization that it came to a head. Is that accurate or is there something that I'm missing? What changed that led to the revolt of Hanukkah? In other words, were people assimilating but not doing everything? Was it sort of like what we call nowadays Torah Umada, Hellenization and Torah? Or was there something else going on earlier? Again, there is a huge question here. We know that there was integration. And by integration, I mean that Jews, even Jews in Judea, certainly Jews living under Ptolemaic rule in Egypt, but even Jews in Judea wanted to be involved and be engaged in broader Hellenistic life. And I would say the majority of these Jews did not think that they would have to abandon their ancestral laws and the integrity of their Jewish identity, even as they participated in Greek life. Now, there were extreme Hellenizers, and we know about those, especially from the Book of Two Maccabees, figures like Jason and his enemy Menelaus and other extreme Hellenizers in Jerusalem who are vying for power and abusing the position of the high priesthood to get that power. But I don't know that there was a binary within the Jewish community of Jerusalem and beyond of extreme Hellenizers versus the Jews who hated every single thing about the Greeks. I think that most Jews felt you could integrate culturally to a degree, provided that your Greek neighbors tolerated the Jewish observance of ancestral law. Um, and the sources that we have about this period do not agree, which is part of what makes uh, reconstructing the conflict and its origins so vexing. We have two main sources for the conflict. One is one Maccabees, one is two Maccabees. I think we talked about this in our last conversation. 
one Maccabees produced in the land of Israel towards the end of the second century in Hebrew. Somebody wrote it who worked for the Hasmonean court. It's a very pro-Hasmonean text. And then we have two Maccabees. This author, we actually don't have the original two Maccabees. We had the condensed version of it. It was produced somewhere outside the land of Israel. The original version was written in Greek, uh, probably by someone who was not an eyewitness to the conflict. And so oddly, it's the Greek diasporan version of the story that gives us all the details of this supposed civil clash between the Hellenizers and between the anti-Hellenizers. So first of all, we don't know the sources that the author of Two Maccabees is using. But the other thing that I think is often overlooked is that the clash that the author of Two Maccabees is highlighting is not the clash between Jews and Greeks only. And it's not the clash between Hellenized Jews and non-Hellenized Jews only, but it's also the clash within the extreme Hellenized Jewish community. So the real clash is happening between Jason and Menelaus. And so people forget this. You know, I have friends who are who like to tell me, you know, Malka, uh, you really emphasize the fault of the Syrian Greeks when you're not paying enough attention to the civil war that's happening in Judea. I'm actually thinking about a dumb Twitter conversation I had a few days ago with some stranger. <laughs> um, but even that is incorrect because the real clash is within these Hellenized Jewish circles who, who are vying for power. And, and again, who is the author of two Maccabees? What are his sources? How does he know this? And why is one Maccabees not mentioning this? Is it because he wants to downplay it? Is it because he's not aware of the details? So there's just a lot of mystery around the question of origins. What we can say with confidence is that there was intra-Jewish discord but I think we also need to recognize that there were a lot of incentives on the part of the Syrian Greek rulers to force the Jews to abandon their what was considered to be barbaric, separatist, insular, anti-Greek practices. There were incentives to do that. And it's as simple as financial incentives. I mean, one of the commonalities between these two books, one Maccabees and two Maccabees, is the invasion of the treasury. So if you can control Jerusalem and the treasury, there's a lot of financial incentives to controlling the Jews. So some of it is lofty and sort of theoretical and has to do with conquering Judaism, maybe, you know, this idea that Judaism and what it stands for undermines Greek values, but there's also some practical benefits too. So does that mean that among those Hellenized Jews that you mentioned in two Maccabees, this fight, was that just a power play or was it really a religious struggle between them, between those Hellenized Jews who say we can adapt Torah to Greek thought or Greek thought to Torah or to Judaism and those who say we don't even want to or is something else going on? We don't know for sure, or at least I don't know for sure. The conflict between Menelaus and Jason seems to be a conflict for power. They're claiming the high priesthood. We don't know that they're having a lofty theological debate about how one should be a Jew. This goes to a core question that I think is not asked enough. When we talk about Hanukkah, we're the Hellenizers that we Jews love to condemn. We're the, the Hellenized Jews of the second century BC trying to erase their own Judaism completely? Or were they trying to incorporate Hellenism into their Judaism? And other Jews are saying, no, 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 that's unacceptable. 
So I don't think that they were trying to erase their own Judaism completely. I think that they wanted gymnasiums in Jerusalem. They wanted to be accepted by the Greeks. They wanted to maybe do away with some of their ancestral laws that the Greeks were critical of. But certainly the Greeks took it way farther than Jason and Menelaus took it when Antiochus said, you cannot observe Shabbat dietary law and circumcision on pain of death. That takes it to a very dark um, and dangerous place. So my feeling is that Jason and Menelaus are not saying we are no longer Jews, right? They're, they're using the position of the high priesthood, right? So therefore, it would be a very silly argument to say, no, they're trying to erase their Judaism and deny their own Jewishness and claim that Judaism is over. No, they're using the high priesthood. They're in the temple. They're not setting the temple on fire, although they do sort of fight over that territory. Uh, but it doesn't seem to me that they're trying to erase Judaism. They're in an extreme way trying to incorporate Hellenism into their Judaism. But of course, it's all about it's all about power. It's all about control. These are two enemies who both want to control the territory. Okay, that's very interesting. Now I'd like to relate Malka these ideas to the world of 2023, when anti-Semitism is either growing tremendously, or perhaps we could say that the latent anti-Semitism that was always there is coming out from under the rock under which it was hiding. Many Jews, famous and not so famous, who never before publicly discussed Judaism or Israel very much, are now constantly going on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook and talking much more about Am Yisrael Chai and we support Israel and so on, which is a wonderful development. We have a war against an enemy in the land of Israel. We have a war which might be defined, at least by some involved in that war, as a religious war. Perhaps not most Israelis, but I think on the Hamas side, they probably see it very much as a religious war. From my perspective, and I'm sure many, many others, there are some parallels that are inescapable between what we're experiencing today and what might have happened 2,000 years ago. Can you talk about some of those parallels that are helpful and some which are actually detrimental and might lead us away from the truth? Yeah, I think this is a really, really important question. I'll start with the commonalities. I think that we can make a compelling case that what happened in beginning in 175 BCE in Judea under the Syrian Greeks and um, what's happening now, not only with the pogrom of October 7th in Israel, but also in communities, unfortunately, in the diaspora as well, we see an effort to erase Jews and Judaism. You know, I'm sure many of our listeners know that Hamas's 1988 charter clearly states that its project is not merely to attain a state or to eradicate the state of Israel, but they're waging war against all Jews. Anybody can access the charter online and read it. Their war is against the Jews, all Jews. Um, similarly, the Nazis uh, wanted to eradicate all Jews, right? All Judaism. And here I think we can start with the comparison, but then we'll find a, an important difference. You can argue that Antiochus, beginning 175, was trying to erase markers of Jewish identity. But the difference is, is that he didn't seem to care very much about Jews outside of his own kingdom. He wanted his subjects to be completely loyal to him. And in order for them to be completely loyal to him, they had to be completely Greek and they had to abandon their ancestral traditions. But he didn't seem to be interested in the broader project of annihilating all Jews 
and Judaism from the face of the earth. I'm not saying again that he liked the Jews or this is merely a political tactic um, or that he treated the Jews like other conquered subjects. We already discussed that. I do think he had personal antagonism towards Judaism, but what we're seeing now with Hamas, and I think what makes it so terrifying and so disturbing is the, um, not only does Hamas make it very clear that they want to wipe Jews and Judaism off the map, but that there seems to be a kind of stubborn refusal on the part of so many, especially in the West, to recognize what Hamas is very clearly saying, which is that this derives unequivocally from a hatred against the Jewish religion. It is not about a territorial dispute. And so that effort at complete erasure was manifest in the desecration of the Jewish body, which has no parallel since the end of the Holocaust. And I think that that's what makes uh, the events of October 7th so very terrifying to all Jews everywhere. Absolutely. So that's one of the things that makes it different. Are there things that are similar between what happened back in the days of Hanukkah nowadays that you think are helpful to discuss and to utilize as a metaphor of sorts? I don't know how much I can say about that. I do think it's very interesting that you can zoom in to both stories and see intra-Jewish clashes, right? You can look at what was happening in September 2023 in Israel. You can look at the protests in Tel Aviv that are taking place against, you know, declaring whatever was declared about Ben Gvir, Smotrich, other right-wing uh uh, leaders in Israel, and you can also zoom in on Jerusalem in 172 BCE and find similar intra-Jewish clashes between these local Jews who disagree about the direction that they should be taking their society in. And at the same time, when you zoom out, you see that ultimately these Jews agree on some very basic fundamental things, and that when they come under threat, they focus on those commonalities and come together. Now, I'm not trying to whitewash the diversity or the conflict that is taking place within the Jewish community, but certainly I don't think that you can understand one without the other. Um, and and I think it's important to note also um, the extraordinary ways in which, especially today, the international Jewish community has come together despite these very real uh, fundamental differences. Okay, that's a very important point. And that's actually leading to my final question today, Malka. I want to talk about unity and disunity. I'm not quite sure how to best express this question, but I guess I'll put it like this. Right now, we're in a state where we are lauding and congratulating ourselves on the unity that Klal Yisrael, the people of Israel, have attained right now, given the events of October 7th and the aftermath. People who had been arguing and, frankly, metaphorically at each other's throats for so long because of the various arguments about judicial reform, religious secular divide, and so forth, those seem to have been put on a low boil for the moment or almost eliminated as everyone deals with this common enemy and a common cause. And of course, that's wonderful. We talk about how great unity is. Unity is a very good thing. On the other hand, when you look at the story of Hanukkah, the story of Hanukkah is largely about the importance of disunity. In other words, there were Hellenized Jews and there were Jews who refused to give in to that dominant culture. Had those Jews who refused to give in said, we care more about unity than about our principles in this matter, Judaism would not exist anymore. The only reason that Hanukkah exists, and with it all of Judaism today, is because those Maccabim decided we are not going to give in to the larger culture. We are not going to allow ourselves to minimize the disagreement that we have with those Hellenized Jews. I suppose my question is this. 
where is the place of unity and disunity in Judaism? Because obviously unity is an ideal, but very often unity means I want everyone to be unified, assuming that they agree with me, but if they agree with you, then we shouldn't be unified. Where is the place of unity, and when is there a place for disunity, for actually bucking the trend and saying, no, I will not go there? Sometimes there's a place for that in the world. I absolutely agree with you, Scott, although I suppose that one would respond by saying it would have even been more ideal for their never to have been Hellenized Jews in the first place. But certainly there is a place, especially in the early stories about Hanukkah and the way that they are retold, there is this idea that those who stood their ground to uphold the integrity of the Jewish ancestral religion, despite the fact that those practices were thought of by Greeks as producing more disunity and separatism and insularity. But the fact that Jews stood up and said, no, we are going to defend the integrity of these practices, even if it makes us look more separatist and more anti-Greek, certainly is the point of the story, I think. And the Jews are very sensitive to the fact that they are being accused, not just within this conflict and this war, but in general, they are being accused of disunity, of being separatists, of not being good team players. And they're walking this tightrope because on the one hand, they want to present Judaism as not threatening Greek values of unity. And they, many of these Jews who are both observant of ancestral law and interested in engaging in Greek society, they want to say, look, we worship a universal God. We worship a God that loves all humanity, that cares about all humanity. Your values of unity and your values of togetherness are our values of unity and our values of togetherness. But we are not willing to compromise the boundaries that separate our communities. And we are not willing to compromise the integrity of our ancestral practices. And so we ask you to accept us and to embrace our values as correlative with yours, provided that you respect our boundaries and our separateness. And if you can't do that, then we are going to fight back. Because unity is only a value up to the point where it honors our dignity. And once you take away our identity, you take away our dignity, and then your emphasis on unity no longer has currency for us. Listening to you speaking right now, I'm reminded of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' The Dignity of Difference. It sounds almost like what he was articulating maybe 20 years ago in the wake of 9-11 was the same battle that was taking place in the times of Hanukkah back then, saying, yes, of course, there is unity in heaven, but that produces diversity on earth, allowing us to be a separate people without denying that in heaven there's some sort of platonic ideal of everything being the same, which is manifest on earth in a completely different way in differences among peoples. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he got in a bit of trouble for that book, at least the first edition, when he suggested that, you know, there could be multiple covenants and multiple truths, and he had to walk back some of those things. But I think that he would have been very popular in the second century BCE among Jews who lived in Judea and elsewhere, because this was the whole point that they wanted to be accepted by the Greeks, but they did not want to be accepted by the Greeks if it demanded them surrendering their particular identities. And so I don't think ultimately this is a story about Judaism clashing with Hellenism. I think that many Jews, most Jews were optimistic that they could live as Jews and integrate, not assimilate, but integrate into the uh, the Greek society, the Greek world, just like American Jews hope to 
integrate into American society without necessarily abandoning their ancient identities. Um, but when that becomes threatening, the Jews know what side they're on, most of them, and they're on the side of their ancestral tradition. Okay, well, Malka, that's a good way to end today. I always appreciate talking with you, and I learned a lot once again, as I anticipated. So I'll say Hanukkah Sameach, and Dr. Malka Simkovich, thank you for joining me again. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.